Welcome to another live stream from the world's best capitalized bank headquartered in the world's best capitalized country. We're in the middle of a terrible humanitarian and environmental tragedy, and that brings forth a range of emotions for each of us as individuals. We in the CIO office are thankful to have the opportunity to share with you what we are thinking about the markets right now and how we're investing. And as always, we approach these times through our observe, orient, decide, and act framework, our use of scenarios, and a portfolio approach to investing. So let's get right into it. I want to talk to Michael first. And Michael, give us the latest on the scenarios around this war and its impact. Thank you, Mark. So look, there's lots of things happened since we last spoke uh, a week ago or so. And, and you know, unfortunately, things, things deteriorated, right? We've seen, as you said, sort of a further tragic loss of life, uh, you know, a pickup in refugees, you know, terrible things that are happening in Ukraine. And also, secondly, in terms of you know the, the the deterioration we've seen you know western governments including the us and united kingdom today announcing that you know they're going to introduce sanctions on russian energy imports which of course you know further intensifies the implication of this war into for the global economy and and for global financial markets now on on these sanctions i believe also in terms of the scenario and the way we are thinking about this what is going to be very very important is to see you know how will these be communicated so one of the things that may be at the margin positive is if the, the US and other governments would decide to you know, be very clear on how they're going to sanction what and, and, and when, you know, providing a clear, clear schedule on how much you can still trade and, and how much you cannot, because that would mean you could reduce uncertainty from the energy market. You might even result in a situation where you have a bit of a decline in risk premium, while at the same time, obviously still keeping the pressure on the Russian governments high because over time you would reduce the the energy imports. Also, as a response to that, we heard Russia saying that, you know, they're considering maybe closing the gas taps to, to Europe, which of course would be, you know, very, very significant in terms of the economic implication this would have in, in countries like Germany, Italy, uh, etc. Now, the other thing, of course, from the pressure on the commodity uh, side on the commodity prices is that there's going to be economic uh, consequences and I'll let probably Paul uh, explain that in, in greater detail. But for me, the key distinction is, you know, how long we're going to see an interruption in commodity flow. If this is only a bit of a short-lived thing, and we get, you know, alternatives coming in, etc., we can still maybe think this is in line plus and minus with our base case scenario if we see that you know these interruptions are more long-lived and have hence a more severe impact on energy prices then of course we have to think about also more severe implications for uh, commodity markets for the global growth and, and hence also for financial markets the last thing i'd say we should not forget despite all these uh, bad things happening there's been a bit of progress in terms of you know russian leaders signaling that you know they're still ready to talk ready to communicate the same messages we got out of ukraine you know this is not enough for a breakthrough but at least at the margin there's also a bit of a 
positive development there. I mean, it's very clear that this crisis has very severe implications for the Russian economy, for the Russian people. It has political implication for President Putin. And obviously, he needs to consider these things as well when he decides on how long he wants to proceed uh, with, with, with this war. So, you know, at the margin, probably there something that is uh, slightly positive. Well, th thank you, Michael. And, you know, another thing that I think uh, might be uh, positive in, in the longer term is th this could be a historic day from the perspective of uh, Europe coming out and saying that they want to launch uh, euro area collective debt to fund energy transition and and defense here. And so, um, you know, so, so much is ha is happening. Um, in the near in the near term, and and that might have consequences out into the future. But I, I think one of the things that you highlighted that is so important is that you know we've been saying for some time we've got to watch these commodity prices, particularly the oil price, uh, as this sharp move higher increases the risk of outcomes that we have, including uh, the the higher commodity prices starting to slow growth. And I think that that's something that we want to get into uh, with Paul now. Uh, Paul, you know, we're starting to hear a lot of people talk about could commodity prices uh, cause a recession? You know, maybe, uh, of course, that the talk is greatest in Europe, but help us understand, help us put these prices a little bit in the right context. Thanks, Mark. I mean, I think you know, people are understandably concerned because we've been seeing some very dramatic moves. The, the energy price change is very significant. Um, we need to bear in mind first, a spike in the energy price, you're up and then back down again, is not really economically important. Economists don't care about that. A prolonged period of higher prices does do economic damage. And we saw, for example, 2011 to 2014, you know, the oil price was over $100 a barrel for that period, and it does have an economic effect. And the way to think about it is a higher oil price is basically a tax on energy consumers. You're increasing a tax on energy consumers. And we all know higher taxes tend to slow economies down. So absolutely, if we get a prolonged period of higher energy prices, that is negative for energy consumers. But it is a transfer. So energy producers get a windfall from this. You're putting it simplistically, higher oil prices, bad for New York, good for Texas. Um, and so you do have to be sensitive to the fact that not all economies are going to react so uh, negatively to this sort of situation. Is it enough to tip us into recession? Now, Europe obviously is a net energy consumer. It is very vulnerable to um, uh, energy coming out of Russia. So yes, the higher prices really do matter there. The EU Commission has got a plan to uh, turn down thermostats and shift to liquid gas and speed up renewable energy. And all of that's great, but some of it's gonna take time. The thermostat thing can happen immediately. We saw that in Japan after Fukushima, but other stuff is going to take time. I don't think it pushes us to recession, though. And the reason for that is simply that the momentum of opening up after the pandemic has really been getting going in Europe. And that's going to be 
quite a strong support for the economy, even as the oil price is going to slow things down, I don't think it slows us down to the point where we're going to have to be talking about a recession. Um, it would take, uh, I think, a more severe disruption than we're currently seeing to get there. So I'd have the recession scenario very much as the risk case, not as the central case as things stand. Paul, let's unpack this a little bit because, you know, I, th I think uh, so what has happened to a degree is that we said, uh, you know, should the sanctions be applied, then we would see commodity prices go up. And actually what we've seen is companies and individuals, insurers, shippers go beyond just what uh, the initial round of sanctions said and say, you know what, we're, we're going to cancel, you know, cancel Russia. We're not going to ship out Russian oil. And this led to a further spike in prices. And now we're seeing uh, continued um, new sanctions with, with this idea of the, the U.S. and, and the U.K. Banning, banning the imports uh, of oil. And so, so this, is, this is continuing. But you know, so, you know, I, I've heard you say that the current uh, prices are not going to lead to a recession, but you know, are we five dollars away from that with, with the oil price? Or are we ten dollars? How, how are you thinking about that? That's uh, a, a good question. Well, I mean, I think we have to reflect that some of what we're seeing with the official sanctions is carrying up, catching up with what the private sector has already been doing. Um, you know, to a certain extent. And you know, I've, I've said before, this is the first European war with a Twitter handle. And so the sort of the social media outrage and the way that companies have reacted to this very strong public opinion as the full horror of war is brought that much closer to you by social media, this is something I don't think goes away very quickly. So you know, that aspect is going to be around for some time. In terms of you know, what sort of level of price would be more concerning in terms of, of economic growth and a recession, it does partly depend on how central banks and other policymakers respond to a further increase in sanctions and, and so forth, what additional support we get through from the fiscal side, you know, are there subsidies to try and help out consumers. But I think realistically, if we were talking about a prolonged period, so not a spike, but a prolonged period above $150 a barrel, then I think we would be looking a lot more negatively at the growth outlook and questioning whether consumers um, uh, are coming back after the pandemic restrictions would be enough to overwhelm that. Bearing in mind, of course, that if you're in the sort of political situation which has got us to oil at $150 a barrel, that's probably going to have a negative effect on consumer sentiment independent of the commodity prices. People are just going to be feeling negative about life, about what's going on, if you've got to a set of circumstances which has pushed oil to that degree. Okay. I mean, look, the point of these scenarios is to gauge what what is the range of outcomes and and, you know, kind of bottom line on the commodities, the higher prices and the, the, you know, the, the continued application of sanctions means we could have a wider range of outcomes. We still could get a resolution to this. We could have commodity prices fall down. And to Paul's point, we're still not, a, not in the range where this spike is, is causing a recession. And then may, maybe uh, should this crisis 
and we'll focus back on other things like, as you mentioned, what the central banks are doing, the things we were worried about before this, this war was started. And so, Paul, um, you know, tell us how uh, this, this war can impact the central bank reaction function because, you know, in the pandemic, I think one of the reasons we were not certain, but confident in our actions was because we had that central bank action responding so quickly to the pandemic. Uh, and we haven't had that this time. And that has also increased the range of outcomes out there. So talk to us a little bit about that. Well, I mean, here I'm afraid we've got a problem. Unlike the pandemic, where it was absolutely blindingly obvious what central banks should be doing, here, you've got two completely different outcomes and central banks have to choose which is the more appropriate. Do they worry about price inflation or do they worry about growth deflation? In other words, do they prioritize the negative growth shock of having the, uh, the tax of higher oil prices or do they worry about inflation getting out of control over the medium term? And of course, that gives you two completely different policy responses. Very obviously, you would be more cautious about tightening policy if you're focused on growth, and you'd be more aggressive about tightening policy if you're focused on inflation. So what is the key factor which decides do we focus on growth or focus on inflation? In my view, it's the labor market and whether we get a wage price spiral developing. So you know, if we start to see um, people reacting to the higher oil price by saying, you know, it's costing me more to put diesel into my, um, my Land Rover, so I'm going to get on the phone to you, Mark, and demand a pay rise to compensate for that, then in that circumstance, you can start to create this wage price spiral, labor costs go up, so firms raise prices, so labor costs go up. If that develops, then central banks are going to have to push growth below trend and possibly into recession in order to break that inflation cycle. That's the only thing you can realistically do. But if that doesn't happen, then I think you focus on the growth story and the fact that you've effectively raised taxes on oil consumers, and then you're more cautious. Now, at the moment, I would say we have no evidence of this wage price spiral emerging. It's, it's just not there in any of the data. Uh, unit labor costs, which is what economists get excited about here, uh, are very, very benign around the world. So I'm not concerned about this at the moment, but then it's too soon for that to have developed. It's something which would evolve over a number of months. Um, but that's where we need to focus the attention. But it does mean, as you say, we have this range of outcomes because the Fed doesn't, doesn't know, the ECB doesn't know, the Bank of England doesn't know which of these scenarios is going to play out over the next two to three months. I think the evidence points to a focus on growth rather than worrying about inflation. There's no necessity to push growth below trend, um, but we can't be certain about that at this stage. Okay, so the Fed and other central banks uh, are aware that if they raise rates, that's not going to put more oil on the world markets, but they know that those higher oil prices will have its own impact on, on growth uh, going forward. But at the same time, if it, if it moves beyond the oil prices and starts to move into wages, then they, then they know that that takes them back more towards the classic playbook where they take away the punch bowl in order to get that more durable inflation under control. Exactly so, that. The, the, okay. the, the Powell knows he can't 
dig an oil well. He can't change the oil price, but he does have the ability to change a wage price spiral. Okay. All right. So those are some of the things that we've been looking at, this wider range of outcomes that are out there, you know, both upside and 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 uh, downside scenarios. And with that, we've been applying that uh, in our portfolios globally. Karen, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about what this situation has meant for our positioning and what, and what positions we're recommending to clients right now. Yeah, well, I, th I think it's great we've been talking a lot about this range of potential outcomes, you know, to the downside risks of oil and gas supplies getting cut off perhaps for an extended period or this wage price spiral effect that Paul talked about. Or to the upside, we've got some of the possibilities. We see a ceasefire, perhaps some of the increase in commodity prices a bit more short-lived, um, because that is really the backdrop that we're dealing with. So what we've been doing in portfolios and in our recommended uh, positioning for clients is recommending moving down from most preferred uh, in equities down to neutral. And that's really a reflection of the fact that we don't think this is the kind of market where you want to be you know, taking a big position based on any one of those outcomes materializing because there's a huge amount of uncertainty, there's a huge range, low probabilities attached to all of these individual um, outcomes. So you know, we think now is the time to be you know, neutral on equities, but investing in a way uh, across all of the potential outcomes um, so that you can navigate this current period of volatility. So tangibly, what we've been doing in portfolios is closing our overweight position in Eurozone equities. So bringing that back from a, having slightly more than our long-term allocation to Eurozone equities back into line um, with our strategic asset allocation, looking at some hedging positions within currencies. So that includes being short Euro, long the US dollar, also looking at some of the commodity currencies like Australian dollar, and also keeping our long position in energy stocks, which we think at this time are really a good portfolio hedge because a lot of the downside scenarios for markets more generally would involve commodity prices rising and, and energy prices rising, which is beneficial for a lot of uh, energy companies. So we think that's a good portfolio hedge um, at the moment. Um, as you said, Mark, we tend to look at things in an overall portfolio context, um, and we know that many individual investors around the world will have different situations, different ability to you know, act on, on different kinds of trades. And um, so what we've done is sort of decompose some of our thinking into six actions that we think that investors can take today to try and navigate this, this period of volatility. So I'll just run through some of those now. We've got more details that we've published in, in recent days. Um, so, so the first ones of those is to build up some portfolio hedges. Now, from a strategic standpoint, that means making sure you've got a liquidity strategy in place. So making sure that you've got you know, two to three years of net spending in cash, in short-term bonds, so that you can navigate um, a period of market volatility without having to dip into your long-term portfolio in order to fund your lifestyle. Um, but at the same time, adding hedges like the energy stocks, like the US dollar, um, thinking about lower volatility sectors like healthcare to try and reduce the volatility of your portfolio. So having some money in reserve to fund lifestyle and also thinking about ways to reduce portfolio vol volatility, and we think is a good starting point to navigate this period. So building up portfolio hedges is our first uh, action. Now, secondly, we thinking a bit longer term, we think now is a good time to be thinking about positioning for an energy transition. 
Um, we've talked about this for a while in terms of the net zero carbon transition, um, but now we're going to get increased thoughts about uh, energy security, energy supply chains, domestic energy production. And taking those two things together, we think that all really speaks in favor of areas like green tech, renewables, clean air, carbon reduction, which as we come out um, of, this, of this crisis and out of the war, we think that's still going to remain in the spotlight and is going to be you know, important from a security perspective and also from an environmental perspective. So we think these are interesting areas to look at um, today and investors looking to take advantage of the volatility in the market and in some of these names at the moment can look at put writing strategies um, to try and build up allocations to these areas over time. But it doesn't just stop at green tech and renewables. So we're looking a bit more broadly um, and you know, we're still looking for opportunities in some of the tech themes we've talked about for a while. So the ABCs of tech, um, AI, big data and cybersecurity. Again, areas which have seen you know, a lot of volatility lately. Remember prior to the war, we were all worried about rate increases and that was hurting a lot of the growth stocks. So still a lot of those trading well below recent highs and cybersecurity we think again is going to be another area in a lot of focus uh, as we as we come out of this. Um, our fourth idea is around seeking opportunity in China. Um, China clearly underperformed a lot last year relative to other markets um, around the world and, and, and in Asia um, but we think that at the moment it is quite well positioned for this market environment relatively low valuations, growth is likely to accelerate through the course of the year, monetary policy and fiscal policy are loosening, whereas they're likely to be tightening in, in much of the rest of the world. Um, and it's relatively insulated compared to some other global markets like, like Europe um, in terms of the uh, impact of the Russia-Ukraine war. So we think that China, in particular relative to other emerging markets in Asia, is quite well positioned in the, in the current uh, environment. Um, fifth uh, is to prepare for rising rates. Um, Paul talked a little bit about a potential scenario in which we could see central banks having to increase rates you know, more substantially to try and tackle inflation. So that is a scenario we do need to, to think about. Typically, rising interest rates tend to be beneficial for financials and for value stocks. So it's important to keep that uh, in mind. And then within fixed income, we think that US senior loans as a uh, asset class for the floating rate should be better positioned than some of the more fixed rate bonds uh, in the sort of investment grade and high grade space. So thinking about that rising rate scenario. And then finally, to think about diversifying with alternatives. So investors often think about diversifying across equities and bonds, maybe diversifying across different sectors or different regions and countries. The alternatives part of it can get neglected. And we think that at a time when you're getting a lot of volatility, um, some increases in correlations between equities and bonds as people start to worry um, about monetary policy and inflation. We think that adding uh, the likes of hedge funds, private markets, uh, direct real estate into portfolios really helps improve the level of diversification uh, and can help navigate uh, this, this period of, of volatility. So we've got uh, some actions we're taking in portfolios to try and you know, navigate this period, but also some clear uh, actions that investors can consider um, to try and navigate uh, this period. Thank you for that, Karen. The way, look, the way I would summarize this is that we do see a lot of opportunities that are out there and we're taking advantage of them in portfolios. What we don't think this is the right time to do is to rely 
as much on beta driving the portfolios. So, you know, there are times where uh, we just think the market can go up and we want to be exposed to that. And that's when you're long equities. In more ch challenging times, more volatile times, that's when we want to rely on the alpha, doing pair trades, doing options trades, moving out of the equity space into the currency space. Uh, we, have, we have some of those positions on. They've been working well. And that's what we're relying on now in the portfolios that we manage to generate uh, the returns with our tactical allocation. So uh, now we have about five minutes and what I, getting into what I always love is to get into the questions. And I, I, I think it's good we have, uh, because there's such a, such a range of things that people are asking. You know, one is about um, just Russia and the sanctions there. And, you know, could we ever reestablish relations? And, you know, I think, I, I'm not sure we have a range of different views on this, but you know, Michael, why don't I, why don't I turn this over to you uh, because you get this question every day uh, from from advisors around the world. So please take yeah. it away. Yes, thanks, Mark. So look, I mean, a first observation: like some of the people that reach out to me, reach out to the team, they say, well, you know, as Russian assets have you know depreciated so much, this must be the time to buy because at some point we know things will go back to normal and that's that's not the advice we're, we're giving them also because a we we don't know when the sanctions will be removed and if they will be removed at all i mean actually history on sanctions that were imposed on other countries they tend to last for for many many years and as these russian sanction uh, companies etc remain sanctioned the, the fundamental pressure keeps on adding up and that can ultimately affect both willingness and ability to pay. So I've, I think, in, you know, in other words, this is probably not the time for bottom fishing. Now, in terms of business relations and specifically, you know, the, the, the commodity trades, and we, we talked in length about the dependencies there on, on energy, but also elsewhere, wheat, precious metals, base metals, potash, and, and Ukraine as well are very, very important producers of these commodities that are relevant globally. We could see some sort of, you know, a, a, a return on, on, on those commodity flows, but really this will depend a lot on how this crisis will, will be resolved. And, and as we also discuss, discuss in the context of global portfolios, the, the range of outcomes at this point is, is simply huge. And, and so, we we would be you know foolish to take uh, too many bold assumptions at at this point in time. So so you're effectively saying clients could be buying uh, Venezuelan and Iranian stocks before they're buying Russian stocks again. Is that right? I, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't rule this out. Yeah. It's it's one of the possible range. You know yeah. this this is a this is a serious situation a war where uh you know we've we've again europe has united in a way now uh with the the talk of uh issuing mutual debt uh to fund defense where we've we've seen something of of a historic change whatever happens to the commodity markets yes yes that's sure and and the other thing here that is worth mentioning is that as we see this historical change then you know there's going to be beneficiaries as well, right? I mean, the, you know, the oil ultimately is going to be imported from somewhere else. So, 
you know, for example, in my team, we've been highlighting, you know, the opportunity to buy and to select uh, all producing um, entities uh, from elsewhere, from the Middle East and from some African countries as well, because ultimately, as Europe, uh, you know, tries to diversify, they'll still have a need to to import energy from from elsewhere, which you know creates uh, creates also opportunities. Okay, and uh, you know, Paul, we're getting some questions about uh, the potential for dislocations in the oil market in Europe, and and questions on fair price for oil if there's full sanctions. I, I'm, you know, these are th these are not probably the way that we, that we would think about them from an investment uh, perspective. Can you help give us some clarity? Well, I think what we've what we've got to consider with with a lot of the oil price issues and you know, what happens if the the gas is turned off and so on. You know, it's a point that that we made right at the start of the pandemic. Markets always underestimate the ability of people to adapt, and we must remember that. Now, I'm I'm not going to be Pollyanna about this and say you know it's all going to be fine. Of course, there are going to be negative consequences if we get dislocations in the energy market, if we see the gas turned off and so on. Of course it's negative, but people do adapt. The EU Commission came out today with an energy saving plan, including turning down thermostats for central heating systems. And a number of people have been very derisive about this and saying you can't order people to turn down thermostats. But you look at what happened in Japan after the tragedy of Fukushima, and that's exactly what people did. They turned off their air conditioning units, electricity demand fell, and the imbalance of shutting down a large part of Japan's power supply was met by a change in behavior which adapted to the power demand. So when we're considering these more extreme scenarios, I think it's very important to remember that markets do tend to overreact to this sort of thing. And we've got to remember human beings are actually very resourceful creatures and they will adapt in the face of this sort of adversity. Well, you know, that's such a good place to end this. And when we are out of time, I, you know, through the pandemic, one of the things that Paul stressed was that, you know, let's not sugarcoat the downside and the ability to market to the, the market to look at a wide range of outcomes and, and judge maybe what some of the downside could be. But what is consistently underestimated is how, how people adapt. You know, they're working from homes, so they're doing their business over Zooms, and the comeback tends to be much sharper than people anticipate. And I think that's what you're saying about here as we try to navigate these scenarios. People, people are resilient. And I, again, we'll end it here. Thank you for the questions. Thank you for being with us. And we look forward to doing this again with you soon. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the global wealth management business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer. 